And here we are again, another edition of what Barry's talking about from Barry 360. I'm Dan Blakely. On this week's program, red light cameras. They're coming soon to Innisfil, along with other traffic calming measures. We look down the road with Innisfil Mayor Lynn Dolan. Ticks, they're coming out of the woods, not just clinging to your dog, but to you as well. We get advice on what to look for, what to do if they hitch a ride on your clothing, and if they bite you. Local politicians and celebrities will be hitting home runs for the hungry, a new initiative to help the Barry Food Bank keep up with demand. We'll get the details. The quest to upgrade Sadlin Arena and attract more and bigger events to the city to boost tourism is ramping up. And we get caught up with the Barry Colts in their OHL Eastern Conference semifinal with North Bay. But first, furnaces don't get much of a break between seasons anymore. Witness last week where we went from heating our homes one day to cooling our homes the next. What Barry's talking about, joined by Chris Yanch from Georgian Home Comfort. Chris, the furnace, probably the most overworked component in the house and probably the most neglected. Yeah, it is. And I guess it's because it's the old saying, out of sight, out of mind. Uh, You know, it comes on, it works, heats your home, and it's something that a lot of people don't really think about. But it's one of those things that's kind of, uh, well, you can pay me now or pay me later. Yeah, for sure. It's like any other piece of machinery. I mean, obviously, if uh, if you're maintaining it properly and on a regular basis, uh, it's going to last, and uh, and you're good, probably going to get a good twenty years out of a good furnace uh, if it's maintained without any real major components breaking down. So let's talk about a maintenance schedule then. We're coming out of winter. The furnace isn't on as much as it used to be, but pretty soon, those with central air conditioning, that unit's going to be firing up again. What do we need to be doing between now and then? Well, I think this is a good time of year to think about uh, you're getting into milder temperatures, so you can maintain, you can do a maintenance and uh, have them both done in one one visit, I think is probably a very convenient uh, way of doing it for most people. What's involved in in this particular visit? You're coming in, you're checking to make sure everything's fine, everything's clean. Yeah, it's basically cleaning. Uh, you know, a lot of people for some reason is even you know filters are dirty and not replaced properly or or uh, on, on a regular basis. So I mean, they do that at the same time. Check gas pressures, make sure there's no uh, leaks. Heat exchangers uh, is a problem. I mean, if a heat exchanger leaks, it creates carbon monoxide in the home. Um, so if people don't have their carbon monoxide detectors on or batteries charged, uh, you know, they may not be detecting it, but it's happening. So, I mean, they'll fire the furnace and then at the same time, like I say, with milder temperatures now, they can, uh, pre-season air conditioning at, uh, maintenance at the same time. Again, check refrigerant pressures, uh, make sure the system is, uh, starting up properly, a compressor, you know, is working properly. And like I say, and then just, uh, you know, they'll run through a, about a, I think it's about a 19 point check on both pieces of equipment. And now would be a good time to get that done because most people wait until they actually need it. Then they <laughs> find out something's wrong or they flip it on and it didn't come on. And then there's this mad rush and they have to wait days and sometimes weeks. And that is usually, it happens every year. I mean, uh, just unfortunately, uh, you know, they'll pick the hottest day of the year to, to turn it on. And if it doesn't work, uh, we don't have, you know, 20 people around, 20 service techs around waiting for that day. So, <laughs> so yes, uh, unfortunately, if that happens, uh, lots of times you're, you're going to be waiting a few days for someone to get there. Anything we as a, as a homeowner or a renter can be doing to, to keep an eye on things, uh, things we should be watching for? troubleshooting? I think the biggest thing is just regular filter changes. And again, 
you know, people think of filter changes when the heating's running, but the, the air conditioning goes through the same ductwork. So uh, sometimes they, uh, I, for some reason, the season changes and they, they don't think the filter needs to be changed. But it, it's, a, it's a year-round uh, issue, and uh, probably every three months or so, uh, a standard filter should be replaced. And again, if you have this proper maintenance uh, on a regular basis and, and you're getting things checked out, uh, the chances of something going terribly wrong become less and less. Yeah, ex- extremely less, uh, for sure. So if I call you today and I say, look, I need you to come out. I want you to just, uh, you know, take a look at the furnace after the winter, get me ready for the summer. What's a ballpark figure for, for a cost to come out and have a look if there's nothing else seriously wrong? It's 119 per piece of equipment, and that's our service rate, uh, preseason service rate. And then if if there is trouble over and above that, uh, depends on parts and, and labor and everything Exactly, else, but, but uh, you know, the issue of uh, supply chain for parts on residential equipment is non-existent anymore. Uh, we're all good. Uh, the system is working properly, and parts are in stock, so uh, usually it's not a big issue. So as we said before... Pay me now or pay me later. Hundred bucks could be a real bargain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Especially like I say. I mean, uh, you know, we have lots of customers that you know just are booked in with our maintenance plans, and we touch base with them every year, and uh, they don't have to think about it. We we book the time in the spring for them, and uh, you know they're on our program. So uh, that's a, probably a, a great idea for busy families too. All right, time is right, price is right. How do they get a hold of you? It's uh, georgianhomecomfort.com or uh, 705-720-2665. All right. Keep us cool coming up. You kept us warm through the winter, and we thank you for that. (laughs) Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Chris. Red means stop, green means go, but not always. During a week-long study in February, the town of Innisfil counted 650 drivers running red lights at County Road 27 and Highway 89 in Cookstown, 72% of them in the east-west direction on 89, and that was just during daytime hours. That intersection, not the only one with red light runners, so guess what? Innisfil is getting red light cameras. Barry 360's Ian McLennan gets an explanation on how this is going to work from Innisfil Mayor Lynn Dolan. So, Mayor, how did this come into play? So, um, you know, we've Innisfil's been advocating for a long time to make automated speed enforcement more affordable or attainable for small and medium-sized municipalities because up to now it's been cost prohibitive except for the very largest of municipalities. So an arm of AMO, which they're not-for-profit, it's called LAS, Local Authority Services, they took on the task of, of kind of creating a turnkey or a bulk purchase for medium or small municipalities to be able to have automated speed enforcement. So they um, worked with the city of Barrie to be a joint processing center and uh, and um, worked with Innisfil. Uh, council gave staff um, direction at our council meeting the end of March to sign a letter of intent with LAS to be the first customer. This type of system, uh, as you indicated, larger urban centers, Toronto, Peel region, have it. Um, why is it critical for a place like Innisfil to also, you know, be able to utilize this system? I think in an article you emphasized, obviously, safety. Absolutely. it's a, And it's our number one resident concern. You, like... Um, certainly, you know, during the election, but anytime, if you ask residents what their number one concern is, it is safety, not only um, for 
you know, traffic safety but and speeds, but also for pedestrian safety. We want our community to be walkable and um, and and safe for everyone, uh, for cyclists and 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 pedestrians, and and for the um, motoring public as well. Now, with this type of system, um, where do those cameras go? How uh, I know in Toronto, it it was uh, community safety zones, school zones. Is that is that the norm usually? Yes, and that's all they're allowed to go. The legislation um, was changed in 2017 to allow automated speed enforcement only in those two areas. So school zones and community safety zones are only where they're able to be. Uh, and, you know, although it sounds easy, you put up a camera, um, it, it, it isn't. It's the it's the the back work, the changing it from a Provincial Offenses Act to an automated penalty um, and setting up the process of actually administering and processing those tickets, uh, creating an opportunity for appeal. Um, so there's, there was a lot of back, kind of backroom work to be done to support the program. So we're really, really happy to be, um, to be first. The, the, the problem with being first sometimes is there are some kinks that will need to be worked out, but that's okay. Our staff are very good at, at they're very agile, and, and if something's not working, it can be tweaked so it can work better. And I guess um, with anything new, there's a learning curve, right? Exactly. There'll be a learning curve uh, for everyone, and uh, uh, but but our number one goal is just to, to keep our community safe. And, and it's not just Innisville. I mean, we hear, I hear from colleagues around the province that this is an issue everywhere. And, um, and so it, it's one tool in the toolbox. Council also um, got a look at the final draft of our whole traffic calming policy. Um, and it covers other things. So in the places where, where traffic, where automated speed enforcement is not allowed, um, we get a lot of complaints just from, you know, neighborhoods. And we can implement other traffic calming measures in those places. You do have to work with the city of Barrie, too. That's where the processing is done. Is there a, a cost that uh, Barrie incurs that they will be reimbursed from part of that ticket, or how does that work? Yes, absolutely. And that's why it's been so unattainable for us for so long. So right now, the city of Toronto is the processing center, and, and you know, the cost of that processing is, is significant. And maybe one day down the road, no pun intended, that the JPC could eventually operate out of Venezuela as, as things move along? We, you know, uh, we never say no to anything right. like that. So we're always willing to work with our partners and uh, and create a safe community. There's many, uh, you know, residents don't always stay in their own municipality. They travel elsewhere and, and we want people to be safe everywhere. Pending Ministry of Transportation approval, the first red light camera in Innisfil will be at County Road 27 and Highway 89 in Cookstown. The hope is by the end of October. We have Hockey Helps the Homeless, and coming up in a couple of weeks, Home Runs for the Hungry. New initiative, Ward 2 Councillor Craig Nixon has been working on. He's with our Will Conkin. Home Runs for the Hungry. Uh, just tell me more about it. What is it? All right. What it is, it is a, uh, a charity softball, actually slow-pitch game, uh, in support of the Berry Food Bank. Uh, the, the idea kind of stemmed from uh, the uh, Barn Burner hockey game, or, you know, Hockey Night in Berry that's been around for a long time and has been very successful. 
And uh, after after seeing that in the fall, kind of on my way home, thinking, "Hey, let's uh, this works. This is good. Everybody had a good time. Let's uh, let's maybe try this uh, w- with baseball. Maybe do a do a spring one for baseball and a, and a fall one for hockey." And then, uh, how did you get connected or think about connecting with the the Barry Food Bank? Yeah, I, I had uh, spoke with Sharon prior, and and certainly understood their challenges that they're they're facing, and. Um, and felt that uh, you know they would definitely be uh, be be a, a service that we wanted to to support, and uh, uh, it, it kind of went from there. You know, after you know spoke with Sharon and then reached out to uh, to the Baycats, who were very supportive, and and uh, uh, it seemed like a, kind of a, a no brainer, easy thing to put together. But uh, the last three or four months, it's it's been uh, been quite a lot of work. But uh, we're looking forward to a good day. Interesting aspect of this is the uh, there will be like some local celebs playing in it. Can yeah. you maybe uh, say some names and stuff? Or yeah, playing we, and how got, that came about. We've got quite a group of people playing. A real mixed group. We've got everyone uh, uh, from uh, Mark Smithers, who's a current uh, Canadian uh, lightweight boxing champion, to uh, Mitch Hooper, who is uh, the world's strongest man. Uh, won the uh, the contest back in uh, Columbus, Ohio, uh, last fall. We've got. Uh, Jane Pritchard uh, throwing out the first pitch, uh, and uh, we have um, Ron Hogarth is is going to be on the field doing some uh, some on the field uh, interviews, and uh, our roving reporter who who's always entertaining, as well as uh, as a, a bunch of uh, local uh, politicians that have given their time. Uh, we have uh, two MPs, uh, an MPP. We have the Mayor Barry Alex Nuttall uh, joining in, uh, and. Um, yeah, it, uh, it it should be a good afternoon. Awesome, yeah, we've yeah. got uh, quite a wide range of, uh, of folks. And I guess that kind of like uh, creates more buzz, especially like these local, just like celebs, like you said, are here to entertain us, come yeah. out and just like, yeah, let's Absolutely. see some fun. Yeah, we're going to see them out of their environment. Uh, we also have uh, several Baycats playing, uh, former and uh, and and current uh, uh, managers and as and players, uh as well as uh, Josh Matlow, uh, Josh Matlow, sorry, the, the president of the Baycats will be will be on the field, and um, yeah, every every one of them is, uh, with the exception of the Baycats, will be a little out of, out of their element, but uh, uh, they've all uh, agreed to join in because it's it's a great cause and and should be a lot of fun. Nice yeah. for sure. And then uh, to the nitty gritty, uh, when, where is uh, it? May the sixth coming up in uh, I guess less than three weeks. It's at the uh, Barry uh, Sports Complex in in. Um, in Midhurst, home of the Baycats, we're hoping that the weather uh, the weather uh, plays along with us. And uh, about rain or shine, we're going to be there. If if the weather's too bad, then we we have a a, a rain date uh, the following day on May the seventh. How much are tickets and and all that sort? Tickets are, are fifteen dollars for general admission. Uh, we also have a sixty dollar uh, VIP package, which uh, includes uh, a great lunch prior, a meet and greet with all the players, and. Uh, and that should also be fun, but uh, yeah, if, uh, I'm assuming that uh, um, you know, fifteen dollars is is a is a fair ticket price. It should be a fun afternoon, and one hundred percent of of every ticket uh, sold will go directly to the uh, uh, to the Berry Food Bank. And then, uh, where can people purchase tickets or find out more information? About well, they can go to the uh, website, which is uh, homeruns4thehungry.godaddysites. We appreciate you guys supporting us, and uh, we look forward to a, to a sellout on, on May the 6th. 
What Barry's talking about is a weekly podcast featuring the best Barry has to offer and more. We've covered a lot of ground since we began last July, brought you details of a new inclusive playground being built in Painswick, went behind the scenes with film director Ron Chapman to learn more about what many believe was the second most important rock concert next to Woodstock, the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival at Varsity Stadium in 1969. We also introduced you to an Innisfil author trying to keep male teens reading with his first novel. You can get caught up and make it easy to keep up in the future by subscribing to what Barry's talking about through any podcast distributor. Still to come on what Barry's talking about, they're small but nasty. Tick season is back. Not just a dog problem, but a human one as well. We continue to follow the Barry Colts through the OHL playoffs, and wouldn't it be nice if one day we could watch them play in the Memorial Cup tournament in Barry? Won't happen without improving and expanding Saddle and Arena. We'll get an update on that effort. Now this. Our community rocks. It's a well-known fact blood transfusion saves lives. It's also a well-known fact that the world relies on voluntary unpaid donations to fill the need for blood. The need for blood never ends. Canadian Blood Services in Barrie is calling on you to help save a life. Please consider donating today. Appointments are mandatory and must be booked in advance. Book today at blood.ca through the Give Blood app or by calling one 2 donate Our community rocks on Barry's Rock Station. Rock 95. This is what Barry's talking about from Barry 360. I'm Dan Blakely. They feed off the blood of mammals, birds, and sometimes reptiles and amphibians. We're back into tick season. The parasitic arachnids known to cling to dogs, spreading disease and illness. They can also latch onto and infect humans, leading to neurological and heart issues and Lyme disease. Barry 360's MJ wanted to know more about them, what to do about them, and what to do if you're bitten by them. She's with Ramian Sureshk of the Simcoe Muskoka District Health Unit. So let's talk about these uh, little pesky things uh, called ticks. We are very familiar with them with protecting our dogs, but um, they're becoming quite a nuisance for humans as well. Um, can you tell me uh, just um, has there been, pardon the pun, an uptick of um, of these uh, ticks in in the area in the last couple of years? We've noticed uh, an, an uptake in, in, in ticks in Simcoe Muskoka um, district, and, and as a result, we we recommend the public to avoid ticks. Uh, and uh, some of those key prevention uh, messages are to dress smart, uh, wear light-colored, long-sleeved shirts and pants, close-toe footwear, and tuck in your clothing. And an example of this would be tucking your pants into your socks. So ticks can't crawl onto your skin. Um, use an insect repellent that is registered in Canada, containing DEET or Icaridin. Read the label and follow the manufacturer's directions. And do a full-body tick check on yourself and your family, including your pets, after being outdoors as soon as you can. And if you find a tick, remove it as soon as possible. How do you remove those pesky little buggers? <laughs> Sometimes, like, I've seen photos and videos, and they're really jammed in there. How do you, how, how do you remove a tick properly and safely? If you find a tick on yourself, uh, we recommend to do a full-body tick check. Um, the, the, the best way to do that is following the simple steps uh, identified in our excellent video on the Simcoe Muskoka District Health Unit website at Online Disease and Ticks. 
how do you know if it's say if is infected with um i guess like the most chronic one is lyme disease um do you remove it and then do you do you take it for testing uh, what what's the pro what's the next protocol after you know say you've been bitten so not all ticks carry the bacteria that causes lyme disease um, and so not all tick bites will cause Lyme disease. Uh, Lyme disease is a tick-borne disease transmitted to humans and pets through the bite of an infected black-legged tick. Um, so if you've been bitten by a black-legged tick, uh, we encourage residents to talk to their healthcare providers. If the tick is available for identifications, residents can submit a digital photo of the tick through etick.ca, which is a timely and accurate um, digital image-based identification method. If etic.ca identifies the tick as a black-legged tick, residents are to contact their healthcare provider, and especially if symptoms associated with Lyme disease appear. Uh, these symptoms can include one or more of the following, fever, body pains, fatigue, with or without a rash. Is it possible, say, if you, you know, you're bitten by a tick, um, but you don't have any symptoms yet, but you're fairly sure it's a black-legged tick, is it possible to get, like, an, an, an antibiotic uh, right away to sort of, I guess, cut things off before they begin? Residents are to contact their health care provider if they become ill with any of these symptoms or if they feel unwell within 30 days of a suspected tick bite. Do you have any stats on, like, how... Um how they've increased in the area in the in the last couple of years or any reasons why we're, we're really hearing a lot about them in the last little while? So there, there could be numerous factors that can, uh, you know, uh, lead to the increase in, 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 the, uh, in, tick, in the tick population. Uh, one of those factors uh, could be climate change. So as we notice the um, climate changing and the weather favoring, uh, you know, uh, you know, increased temperatures, we also would notice an uptake in, uh, in tick activity as well. That is all wonderful information. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Game four tonight for the Barry Colts in their OHL Eastern Conference semifinal with the North Bay Battalion, Barry 360's Will Conkin, corralled Colts broadcaster Gene Pereira for a look at games one through three and for a preview of tonight's game. Gene, another round of Colts talk. They're leading their second round series against North Bay 2-1. Took the first game 3-2 in overtime. Second, Battalion 1-5-2. And then a Colts 2-1 OT win on Tuesday. And with some magic movement from uh, Jacob Frasca. Uh, maybe to start things off, Gene, break down that game winner from Tuesday. Yeah, it was just, you know, I mean, obviously without Evan Drilling, uh, you know, their 100-point guy, uh, or, you know, close to it, 95 points and one of the top scorers in the OHL. Uh, you know, they, they were facing some adversity, but uh, they, they played really well. And it was defensively, they gave up just 18 shots. And, uh, you know, a 1-1 hockey game that uh, they really carried to play in. And, uh, you know, over time, uh, uh, you know, uh, two veterans, uh, Jacob Trask and Tyler Savard, who they normally don't play together, but because of injuries, Bo Jalzman got hurt during uh, the game last night. So Marty was kind of mixing lines what he had left. And... Uh, just a great, uh, just a great three-way play with uh, Declan McDonald. He went to the net, and you know Frasca kind of took it across the blue line, fired it right across to Savard, and just great patience to kind of outweigh one of the defensemen. North Bay defenseman went down. He kind of outweighted him, and then put it right on the tape for Frasca in front. And uh, Dom uh, Divincentis, who was just outstanding for North Bay. I mean, he was the only reason they were in it. 
mice, um, and uh, you know they they held last night, and they, they did it without a, a couple of top players in the lineup. And like you said, yeah, without uh, Veerling, he got uh, injured in Game Two. Um, is there any update on him, and uh, if he'll return, maybe for uh, for Game Four? Yeah, talking to Marty, obviously, uh, you know, from what I hear, it's not going to be a lengthy injury, but it remains day to day. They said they're going to try to get him on the ice uh, today. Uh, and, and see how he, he handles it, and the hope is that they get him back in the lineup. But uh, uh, as is the way of the playoffs, uh, it's going to be probably a game time decision. We'll see how Evan feels after today, and you know for Jelson the same thing. See how he feels uh, after uh, a day and a bit of rest. And uh, uh, again, I mean, they're your top two centers, so uh, you know with the chance here to, to go up through one of the series, you, you want them back in the lineup and. You know, this series has just been an absolute battle. It's been everything what expected. I mean, two fairly even teams. And, you know, credit for the Colts last night because they, uh, they played so well defensively. I mean, they gave up few chances. Uh, North Bay had won in overtime, and they just uh, hopped over the stick of Carl Jackson. But, uh, you know, other than that, I mean, uh, they really didn't produce much offense, especially after Pine Nelson, uh, their best defenseman, was ejected from the game for, uh, on a cross-check to Savard's face. And then, um, are you satisfied with uh, with Brant Clark's play through three? Do you see? Um, does he have to do anything different um, on uh, on Thursday at all, or do you like how he's operating? Yeah, you know, the thing that kind of stands out for Brant is a, is a player as highly skilled as he is, and uh, you know, again, he, he continues to lead NHL scoring, but you know, he just does the little things so well, and you know, even last night. Um, you know, you always think, okay, you want that big shot from the point. Brant is just a veteran and recognized. Sometimes you just got to get the puck through. North Bay does a really good job of getting in the lanes and blocking shots. And, you know, for Brant, uh, he just, you know, if you see a couple of your teammates in front of the net there, you know, just make sure you get it through. And, you know, either they get a deflection or they get a rebound. And, you know, the way defense this was playing last night, I mean, that's what it was going to take. I mean, uh, you know, just beating with a shot from outside was very unlikely. The Colts uh, did a good job of getting traffic uh, in front of the net, and, and that's what you got to do when you're facing a Red Hawk goaltender. And then uh, looking forward, how do you see the next set of games going? You mentioned prior to this series starting, it would probably go the distance. How are you feeling now? Yeah, it's still, I mean, obviously these, these have been tooth and nail, but the Colts have a real chance here on Thursday. Uh, especially being on home ice, you still got the last line change. Marty Williamson can get you know the line, the guys he wants out against certain North Bay lines, and you know it's you really have to take advantage. But uh, you know I think you know every game is going to battle. I don't see Thursday being any different, but there's an opportunity to take a three-run stranglehold lead in the series, and uh, that would be huge. I mean, there hasn't been much to choose between these two teams, but. Uh, I think the Colts are, are feeling pretty good, fairly confident. Uh, they were dancing it up pretty good after in the dressing room <laughs> after last night, and uh, you know they felt pretty good. And you know that's what uh, that's what's important. But uh, you know they have to realize that you know it's, it's right back to work. And if they continue to limit uh, you know North Bay's chances like they did on Tuesday. Uh, you know, they should be in good shape. Um, but, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, we'll see with the injury factor. And that means other guys got to step up on offense like Savard and Frosca did on this night. So game four uh, on Thursday, five on Saturday, then possibly six on Monday and seven on Tuesday. Can the Colts get the job done? Uh, we'll see. Till next time, Gene. Perfect. Thanks, Phil. 
The Colts hoping to make it to the Memorial Cup, the city of Barrie hoping to one day be able to host the Memorial Cup, and other big events that Sadlin Arena cannot currently accommodate. Ward 7 Councilor Gary Harvey helping to lead the effort to upgrade and expand the arena in the hope of bringing more tourist dollars to the city. Here again is Barrie 360's Ian McLennan. Tourism Barry came out with a report. Um, there were six options. Uh, they chose number six, uh, recommending, a, I believe it was a $40.8 million expansion of the Saddle Arena. Before we jump into those details, you were the one that uh, was kind of the lead on council back, I think it was December 2021, a six to five vote to get a consultant to explore an expansion opportunity for Saddle Arena with a focus on sport tourism. What is sport tourism? Yeah, so sport tourism is obviously uh, attracting uh, more tourism to our area and using sports as that avenue. Um, and obviously being here in central Ontario, uh, we've got so many golf courses, ski hills. Uh, it's a huge hockey community. Curling has really taken off in the last uh, several years. And uh, and especially, too, like even with the Raptors uh, being so successful, uh, basketball has taken off. Uh, now we've got TFC down in Toronto. Uh, we're hearing from the soccer community that they would like to uh, see some expansion in the soccer world too. And now we have our own uh, our uh, own Barry uh, football uh, team here too. And uh, so it's really exploding just from all avenues of uh, the different gamuts of sports that are available to us. Is it economics for the city of Barrie that um, that we, you know the, the, that could be poured into this community? Um, if we had a lar- if the city had a larger uh, rink, you talked before about the last decade, cities missed out on some events that have gone to North Bay or Thunder Bay because they have the facility. Yeah, no, and that's uh, that's really where this uh, started from when I uh, when I looked around and uh, when you looked at. Uh, the economic impact uh, that is generated by these large uh, sporting events. Um, so the various tourism bureaus uh, create what they call a steam report, which then comes up with the uh, the economic impact that that event would have had. And when you start looking at those reports, it's uh, it's astounding at times. Uh, back almost 10 years ago uh, when uh, Skate Canada had the national championships in London, um, they uh, came out with an economic impact report of $42.5 million. Um, most recently, actually just last week, uh, Saginaw, Michigan was uh, awarded the 2024 Memorial Cup. And uh, they've released that the anticipated economic impact from it is going to be at least $24 million U.S. Um, I know uh, Kingston applied uh, for that same Memorial Cup and uh, in their proposal uh, they were estimating that they were going to be 18 to 20 million dollars in economic impact so it obviously does depend on um, where where your uh, city is as to what the economic impact will be um, but then you start looking at other events like curling for instance which curling Canada says is between 6 to 10 million um, it, it's astronomical the amount of economic impact especially when you look at where uh, hopefully coming out of this pandemic and we can stop using that P word. Um, but one of our huge areas that have suffered as a result of it is tourism, our restaurant industry, our hotel industry, and it's large scale events like this that will provide a significant boost to those sectors. Now, Barry has tried uh, the Colts, the city to land a Memorial Cup, at least twice if memory serves and both times not happening it's not because Barrie isn't a great hockey town but again they came back to and we're close to you know Toronto and what have you you think 
it would you know almost borderline center of the universe for it. But again, it was the issue about seating and, and the facilities. And, and this report, Gary, uh, recommended uh, an expansion of seating by about uh, twelve hundred extra seats from the forty two hundred. Why is that so important to have that extra seating and those new facilities? So the seating really comes down to obviously the more bums you can have in seats, uh, the more revenue you have coming in for events. Um, not just for sporting events, but also for concerts and things like that. And from speaking to the different sectors, whether it's uh, Hockey Canada, Curling Canada, um, the minimum 5,000, it seems to be that magic number that uh, that seems to be the sweet spot. Like if you look at Saginaw, for instance, uh, they've got an arena with 5,500. So you don't have to be the Londons with 9,200 seats. Like exactly. That, yeah. Um, to be able to be competitive. Um, and also, too, it, it was a bit of a game changer back in 2011, um, the first time the Colts put in for a Memorial Cup uh, when it was awarded to Mississauga um, because uh, the owner of the Mississauga team at the time had uh, guaranteed the CHL a minimum of a million dollars. And I've been told that uh, that number has crept over up over the past decade or so uh, and is uh, up uh, up near the $2 million guarantee uh, figure. And, and, and obviously it's uh, huge economics uh, for not only the league, but also for the host city. So where does the report go from here now? So from here, uh, yeah. the report's with city staff. Um, and uh, I'm sure eventually, whether it's myself or another member of council, there will be a motion on the table requesting a staff report to get staff's perspective uh, on this because um, obviously there were several options presented and I'm not 100% sure how option six became the preferred option um, because uh, that is pretty much in line with the plans that the Colts had designed back in 2011 when they were first looking at the uh, at the uh, first Memorial Cup when it came to their mm-hmm. dressing room area and stuff. Not so much the seating because there was a lot of engineering aspects involved in that. Um, you are right. There's a a lot of competing interests. Uh, we do have, uh, obviously, several other capital projects uh, that council will have to consider uh, in the next uh, few coming years. Uh, we've also got two new community centers uh, that are going to be built within the next uh, seven to ten years, one in the Hewitts, one in the Salem's. Um, and it'll really come down to uh, what the will of council is and uh, and where they feel that the money is being spent best um, with myself, I look at return on investment. What is going to provide the city and our taxpayers with the best return on the investment? And f- from my perspective right now, from what I've seen when it comes to the other capital projects outside of the community centers, it definitely does seem that the, the arena expansion does have the largest significant return on investment for our taxpayers, for our business owners. Paraphrasing Mayor Nuttall, everything's on the table regarding this city-owned facility. Is it a moneymaker or was it ever designed to be such? So historically, we've been told by the consultant that these uh, event centers, because they're not considered community centers, uh, typically don't break even or or make money as a general rule. Um, the Sadlin Arena right now um, loses about half a million dollars a year in revenue um, in relation to the cost of operating it. Uh, And we've been told by the consultant that that is uh, one of the lower end of the scale when it comes to dealing with with the deficits in buildings of this sort. And when you look at the volume of concerts and other events that we have in that arena, 
really half a million dollars. If we had another six, seven days of use, whether it's concerts, special events, whatever, that would probably make up that half a million dollars. And, and that's the one thing I've really been pushing is to think bigger, think out, outside of the box, because it's, it's a shame when you think that a city the size of Barrie, situated in central Ontario, we're far enough from the GTA that we're not the GTA. We've got extremely successful hockey team that draws very well. We've got a huge curling community. Basketball's growing like crazy. Soccer's really going. How do we keep losing out? Especially in the curling world, I'll give you an example. We've constantly lost out to places like Thunder Bay and North Bay. And again, they're in a similar situation. They have extremely old arenas. However, their arenas have gone through one or two expansions over the years. And this is really, too, about being able to add to the life of this arena. Because to go and build a brand new arena right now that, let's say, 7,000 seats, you're upwards of 130 to $140 million, we've been told. So that's not on the table. Um, whereas expanding and putting some uh, money into this, adding more seats and putting uh, up-to-date dressing room facility to get it up to OHL standards, um, will have a significant return on the investment. Um, but again, it just really comes down to the competing interests and, uh, and what's the will of council. Okay, well, thank you, Gary. Uh, of course, it was in 1995 at the time when the, uh, at that time, Barry Molson Center opened and was, was considered state-of-the-art, so maybe by its 30th birthday, uh, we'll know more, right? Yeah, thanks, Ian, okay. uh, and thanks for having me. Okay, thanks, Gary. And that's our program for this week. Thanks to Ian, MJ, and Will for their input, to Matt Ladder for his technical expertise, and to you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to what Barry's talking about, rate it, review it. You can also keep up with what Barry's talking about on Facebook and Twitter at Barry360 and on our website, barry360.com. I'm Dan Blakely. Hope you'll join us again next week.